In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Good morning. Wonderful to see you all here. Uh, you see those flowers? That's pretty much how I feel this morning. Fantastic. And congratulations to the seniors who are, who are here today. We're celebrating you. We're so proud of you. Uh, now for the, okay, now you're going to get bored. You can take a nice little nap now. This, is, uh, this morning we hear Jesus say one of the most obscure and obtuse things in the entire Bible. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then, indeed, his house can be plundered. Does anyone have any idea what Jesus is talking about? There. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. What is he talking about? Who is this strong man? Who wants to tie him up and plunder his house? And why? Is the strong man a good guy or a bad guy? We don't know. Well, this morning I'm going to do what few preachers ever dare to do. I'm going to ask you to walk with me into this obscure and difficult saying of Jesus. Few biblical scholars really even claim to understand it, and the ones that do are a little bit insane. So <laughs> brace yourselves. Here we go. And why? Why do we even dare to do this? I say it's because we are Trinity Cathedral. And we love a challenge, don't we? Yes, we do. This is the church, after all, that recently completed no less than five separate concert-length liturgies featuring Oliver Messiaen's highly experimental and extremely abstract, difficult organ compositions. So I think we have the capacity to plunge for a few minutes into these obscure sayings of Jesus. So hang in there with me. This is one of those sayings of Jesus that feels really authentic when we hear it because it's so strange. We know how much Jesus loved to unsettle us, you know, and give us these cryptic, odd little teachings. It's dramatic, it's vivid, it's unexpected as Jesus' teachings often are. And in fact, biblical scholars tell us that it is authentic to Jesus because we know it shows up in three separate and independent sources. It shows up in the Gospel of Thomas, in Mark, and also in Q, that early collection of sayings common to Matthew and Luke. So we know this saying is authentic. We also know that it was important to Jesus and his disciples because it was so carefully preserved and obviously taught taught so often that it shows up in these three independent sources. That's actually quite unusual. You with me so far? All right? Okay. So have you ever wished that you had a time machine and you could go back to when Jesus was alive and you could just sit at his feet and hear him speak directly to you, unfiltered, without all the problems of interpretation we have in the Bible, just Jesus in his own words, no additions, no edits, reformulations, no problems of 
context or translation. With this teaching about this strong man, here we are sitting there in front of Jesus, not the Jesus that the church has been trying to sell us for 2,000 years, but the actual Jesus, the real Jesus. And I'm very excited as I think about this. He opens his mouth and he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. And then he walks away. And you're like, what <laughs> happened there? What is? It's enough to drive us all a little bit insane. We find this obscure saying in chapter 3 of Mark's gospel. It's toward the beginning of his ministry when Jesus is just starting to attract large crowds of people with his healing and his exorcisms. And right away, storm, storm clouds appear in the form of people saying that Jesus has lost his mind. In fact, it's not just people, it's his own mother and his siblings they're saying that he's lost his mind, and they're talking about restraining him, put him in a straitjacket, haul him off to the mental ward, which in those days was just this pit outside of town where they chained you up and left you to rot. And then, adding fuel to the fire, these big deal authorities from Jerusalem show up, and, um, and they, they don't like what they're hearing at all, and so they starts saying that Jesus is possessed of the devil. He has Beelzebul, they say, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. And Jesus hears all this, and with one simple little question, he proves just how not insane he is. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? A house divided against itself cannot stand. And by the way, don't you love it when Jesus quotes Abraham Lincoln? Isn't that great? <laughs> He's like, he saw so far into the future. So anyway, what he says, what Jesus says, it's perfect. It's, it's incredibly elegant. It's logical and it's witty. It's the kind of reply that just silences his critics. Okay. Great, so far so good, all this makes perfect sense, except when you look at the entire history of the human race, you see that since the beginning of time, Satan has been casting out Satan all the time. And for this insight, I give full credit to Jeremy Duncan, who is a very smart hipster pastor in Calgary, Alberta, who has a series of videos on YouTube which summarize the teachings of the obscure French theologian and social critic René Girard. And I have to also give credit to our dean, Dean Nathan, who, when I was complaining about this obscure passage, he said I should look into René Girard because he thought René Girard had something to say about it. And he was right. René Girard has this terrific insight that since the beginning of time, Satan has been casting out Satan. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're the leader of a tribe or a clan in an ancient society, I don't know, 8,000 years ago, and some younger, stronger leader comes along and he threatens your dominance. Happens all the time, right? So what do you do? Well, of course, the first thing 
that comes to mind is you challenge him to a fight, right? But eh, maybe you're getting older, and that's kind of dangerous. You might lose. And even if you won, your people might take sides, uh, one against the other, and the conflict could split your community and even spark a civil war, and that weakens your whole society. So instead, what you do is you look around, you find somebody weak, maybe somebody a little odd, who doesn't fit in, maybe somebody with a disability or a disfigurement or an unusual gender expression or whatever. It doesn't matter, just so they're different. And you point to that poor soul and you say, here, that's the real problem. He, we've got a devil in our midst. We can't be fighting each other. We've got to expel the devil. And so you create a scapegoat. And you direct everyone's in aggression and animosity on uh, that poor soul, redirecting it away from yourself to that person. And the community unites behind a common enemy, and once again, you're the hero leading the attack, and that younger guy who was challenging you, um, well, maybe you kind of co-opt him, you put him in charge of the horsemen who are going to hunt down the poor guy. Um, that'll make him happy, and everybody gets to do something. It's the oldest trick in the book, a guaranteed way to unify your community and preserve your power. We've been doing it forever. Pick your devil, Palestinians, Gnostics, Jews, witches, Samaritans, Protestants, Catholics, Jews again, communists, blacks, Mexicans, conservatives, liberals, whoever, it doesn't matter. Just make up a story, create a demon, Toss a rope over a tree branch and preserve your power. Easy peasy. Nothing unifies the community more effectively than when devils are looking for a devil to cast out. Of course, in the process, we become the devil. We've been doing this since Adam blamed Eve for eating the forbidden fruit, which not coincidentally was the reading from Genesis this morning. It all started there. So Jesus sees all this. He sees how in our scapegoating and our othering, in our purity codes and our power grabs, we're all doing the devil's bidding. In that sense, he sees that we are all possessed of the devil while we campaign for dominance and security and the truly insane idea that we can defeat the devil through violence. Jesus' family is saying he's possessed, but what they don't understand until later is that he's the only one in the entire world who is not possessed. And that's when Jesus sees the only way out of this whole mess. The only way we're going to get freed of this demonic possession is when we finally turn our violence and our fear and our rage upon the one we actually love the most. Only then will we truly see the insanity for what it is. Only then will our demonic love for power and security at the expense of others be exposed. Only when those, na when those nails pierce his hands do we finally 
feel that pain. Only when Jesus cries out from the cross do we hear our own voices in his despair. When Jesus dies by our hand, the demonic spell that has blinded us since the beginning finally dies with him. The illusions of our demonic possession finally lift and this entire myth of redemptive violence is finally exposed as absurd. And finally, we see clearly our own atrocities. So with that context in mind, let's go back to that obscure and difficult saying, because that's what he says next. If you want to plunder the strong man's house, first you've got to tie his hands. In other words, if you want to enjoy true security, if you crave the riches of the strong man, you don't need to kill him or expel him or demonize him or perpetuate cycles of violence and abuse that will all only come back to bite you. No, instead, take away his agency. Tie his hands which is exactly what Jesus did to the people who called him insane. Remember, the story says the authorities came to restrain him. They came to bind him, and instead he bound theirs by exposing their delusions. Not by fighting them, not by meeting force with force, violence with violence, but instead by draw, drawing nearer to them, by listening closely, by holding up the mirror to them so that they could see for themselves the lies that they were trapped in. This is how Jesus binds the devil. Throughout the rest of his life, he will be binding the strong man, taking away the devil's agency. Whenever he draws near to the leper, whenever he makes friends with the tax collector, whenever he praises the Samaritan, whenever he listens with compassion to the adulterous woman, every time he draws near, he listens, he reflects, he holds space, and by the power of love, he dispels the demonic desire to demonize others. In this day and age when Democrats are demonizing Republicans and Republicans are demonizing Democrats, maybe it's time that we exposed the grip that our demons have on us, lest the whole house fall. I joked earlier that Jesus had quoted Abraham Lincoln, but I really do believe that Lincoln was channeling Jesus when he said, we are not enemies, but friends. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic chords of memory will swell when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. May it be so. May the better angels of our natures touch us all once again, amen.